listening to the SoPod Network. In the latest Tom Talks episode, the Southern Company CEO discusses the record-setting season of reliability and resilience from our generation fleet and answers questions from employees submitted through Tom.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the Tom Fanning Podcast. I am your host, Skylar Bayman, and Tom, it's great to be with you again. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. A lot of fun. Uh, we really enjoyed the feedback that we got after the first episode. I know uh, people reached out to you. So uh, thanks to everyone who listens and for reaching out. We'd love to hear from you. And love the feedback too. You know, people send me emails or catch me in the hall. It's good to hear. And it's also good to see what people are interested in. That's right. Uh, we're taping this around, uh, it's October 1st and the weather outside has been warm. It's staying warm. It's sort of an incredible uh, extended summer across the system, whether you're in Illinois, uh, Tennessee, Virginia, take your pick here, obviously in the Southeast. Um, and we just had some great news come out uh, the other day that as the warm weather continued, the system uh, has been booking new highs, all-time September peaks, but really great reliability. We've had the best equivalent forced outage rates. That's kind of the way we measure the reliability of our generation fleet. I think it's the record best in the history of Southern Company. And that's pretty notable because Southern always kind of, I think, gosh, nine out of 10 years has the best reliability in the utility industry. And now we've beaten the best we've ever done. So that's really pretty good. You know, and it's important because this notion of reliability is really transitioning into a notion of resilience. Reliability is kind of how your system operates under normal conditions. Resilience means how does your system operate under abnormal conditions? And a lot of times we think about that as a hurricane, a snowstorm, a cyber attack. It's interesting in that this hot weather period we're having is now eating into our normal outage season. And so we've had to really be very kind of nimble and quick about rethinking how we want to take units out of service in order to meet the load of our customers. So this is another form of resilience that we're excelling at. Interesting. Now, it's a great transition because the next thing I wanted to talk about, um, you've been in DC a little bit uh, recently. Uh, The Solarium Commission is a commission that uh, you've been named to. You're one of, I think, two private citizens, i.e. non-governmental people. Really only one, because the other one is Suzanne Spaulding. She's a great friend of mine, but she was like undersecretary of Homeland Security for years. So she's a career you know, person in D.C. Right. So this is a, a commission looking at a new way to think about national defense or how we need to d- defend our critical infrastructure that obviously at Southern you we bet. operate. So this Solarium Commission is fascinating. It's kind of historic. So- The first time it was put in place was by President Eisenhower, and it was post-World War II. And the whole theory was, how should we reimagine military doctrine in a post-World War II environment? And the general thinking was defending Western Europe on essentially a tank battle on the plains of Poland against the advances of the Soviet Union back then. And so now we've had the Solarium Commission uh, put back in place. And as I said, I'm essentially the only private citizen on it representing private industry. And the mission now is to reimagine military doctrine in a cyber digital world. 
And it's just just some fascinating questions. Because back then, we always had historically two oceans on each side of us, uh, you know, friendly countries north and south of us. And so you had this geography that really protected our nation. In cybersecurity, there is no geography. And in fact, a lot of the attacks may even come across servers that already reside within the United States. Traditionally, when we think about an existential threat, that is a threat that would severely impact potentially our American way of life, commerce, the whole thing, we really need to think about nation states. So this would be Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and then derivatives of them. Uh, so I love to think about movies in these contexts. It's mm-hmm. like uh, it's like James Bond movies where you had this emergence of that evil group called Spectre. Well, Spectre's kind of reemerging in this sense. People that have the statecraft, the ability to enact cyber warfare, emerging out of Russia, Iran, China, North Korea, and doing it on the dark web really for criminal purposes. So it's the big four plus the emergence of a criminal element using very sophisticated techniques. And so we have to think about how do we defend the critical infrastructure of the United States? So it's very non-traditional. When I look at China as a model, China has very little separation among and between private industry, the government, and the military. They are inextricably linked. When I think about the history of American commerce, we have laws and and constitutional practice in place to, in fact, separate the operation of private industry, government, and the military. And when I think about the battlefield of the future, this new military doctrine, it isn't going to be the plains of Poland and some tank battle. It's going to be an attack against the critical infrastructure of America. So how should we rethink the mission of of us all working together to protect America? Under normal conditions, private industry works under the umbrella of homeland security. And as I help lead the utility industry, which is both investor-owned utilities as well as public power, munis and co-ops, We work under this umbrella of Homeland Security, so we prepare for and we respond to these kinds of threats. In the middle of that is the people that hold the bad guys accountable. So that would be DOD. It would be uh, U.S. Cyber Command, which is actually a part of NSA and works with DOD. It's uh, the FBI. It's Secret Service. And how should DOD work with us? When we think about the attacks that come on to us, they will come at increasingly faster speeds. So Southern Company and any company like ours gets attacked millions of times a day. Now, a lot of those attacks are kind of probes and it's bad guys looking for ways in. So they're not necessarily trying to shut down the electric system, but they're probing the perimeter, trying to figure out ways to get in so that if they want to one day, they can. But still, we have to prepare for all of those issues. When we think about the future, it won't be people attacking machines. It'll be machines attacking machines. 
And the speed of those attacks could move from millions of times a day to trillions of times a day. And as we have to respond to those attacks, we want to make sure that the guys that will hold the bad guys accountable, Department of Defense, will be right alongside us, shoulder to shoulder, and see the battlefield the way we see it at the same time we see it. So that is an exciting new vision for how the United States government, the intelligence community, the Department of Defense, and private industry have to work together. Now, we're going to start small. Um, What is critical? Traditionally, uh, Homeland Security has used a definition that essentially thinks about severe economic consequence and potential loss of life. We are adding to that uh, a set of infrastructure that uh, applies to what we call Section 9 companies. That is, companies that have some bearing on the nation's ability to see, to listen, and to defend ourselves. So you would think about the union of the intelligence community and the Department of Defense. So if we have that kind of relationship, we would have a hand-in-glove relationship then with DOD and with the intelligence community in a real-time kind of structure. Now, there's a whole lot that goes within that, including potentially some necessary changes in law to effectuate it. Uh, The Salarium Commission is meeting through the fall, and I think we'll probably produce something I don't know, January, February, something like that. But it is it is uh, really important work. It is uh, something that requires us to have a broad vision. So as I'm the only private citizen, essentially, in this effort, I represent electricity for sure, but I also represent the other critical infrastructure in America. And one of the things we've been doing lately is what we call the tri-sector group. So we recognize that electricity and finance are interdependent. We recognize that electricity and telecom are interdependent. And so we've knit together finance, telecom, electricity into a single entity called the Trisector Group. And that uh, testified in front of the Solarium Commission last week. It was very effective. I think that's the the point there at the end, right, is all the stuff that Uh, that you talk about in the beginning, people can kind of think, oh, that doesn't have anything to do with me or anything like that. But as Southern Company, whether it's on the gas side, whether it's Link, whether it's electricity, whether it's anything that we do, we're part of that lifeline sector that really matters in times of crisis. Hey, and Skylar, there was a group put out, and this is a group that was formed, I think, under Truman, maybe, called NIAC, National Infrastructure Advisory Council. They actually report to the president. They've actually come out with uh, what they call lifeline sectors. They actually identify segments of the economy. I think there's 16 of them broadly. But the top three were finance, telecom, electricity, and the second three were water, transportation, and public safety um, and, and health and things like that. It is very clear that what we do is central to the well-being of America. America can't run without electricity. Now, let's not be too parochial either. We think about electricity downstream from us. So one of our major energy dependencies is natural gas. 
right? Before I got here, we were 70% coal. Now that's down to about 26. Gas was single digits. Now it's about 50. So we got to make sure the gas flows. So this idea of us joining forces with then AGL Resources, now Southern Company Gas, also joining forces with Kinder Morgan through the Southern Natural Gas Pipeline. These are absolutely critical, what they call vertical um, um, alliances that are going to be so important to how we continue to deliver this important product to the Southeast. And just to combine everything together, talked about the superior performance that we've had during this summer. That comes even with less emissions than just 10 years ago. Absolutely. Uh, We've done all this good work and we're somewhere around 35% less emissions. I mean, it's just amazing stuff. But sports fans, let's not forget, this this is just crazy. As I grew up in the company, and now I'm, gosh, I forget how many years I'm in there now, 39 years. I'll be that in December. Um, we used to be a summer peaking entity. Many years here recently, we've been a winter peaker. And that's fascinating. As you think about the advent of more renewables in our mix, we used to be zero before I got in this job, and now we're about 11. Most of our renewables are solar. Your winter peaks will occur generally around 7 a.m. in the morning. How's solar doing at 7 a.m. in the morning? Not very good. Not not well. So we've got to think about different approaches to serve winter peaks. And the winter peaks also will occur very suddenly. You have a cold snap, people put on electric strip heat, and bam, our peaks go up. So it's a more challenging environment probably than we've ever had before. But it's good stuff. And what we do matters. That's right. Uh, change your course just a little bit. Uh, real quickly, you were part of a group from Southern Company that recently spent some time in Europe uh, taking different meetings. Can you tell everybody what that was about? Yeah. So I've always had the theory that what goes on in Europe is kind of 10 years ahead of us. Hmm. I've always kind of felt that way about California as well, <laughs> <laughs> the People's Republic of California. Uh, but uh, with respect of Europe, we wanted to make two big visits. Uh, with several different companies. The two big visits we wanted to make was, one, I wanted to visit big oil. So Shell, British Petroleum, Total. The second really dealt with people in our industry. So in the UK, it was National Grid. It was a company called Centrica. In Germany, it was RWE and Eon. In Italy, it was a, a big company called Enel. And then, and then they're a national transition, I mean, um, transmission company. And so I wanted to kind of say with all of the dislocation and chaos that Europe has been through with the European Union and these so-called organized market attempts and shutting down nuclear and doing this and that, they, they merge public policy in with their electricity policy and it has produced a mess. In other words, people ask me all the time, what do you think of Europe? And I say, well, here's this. You want good American policy? Look at Europe. Do the opposite. Gotcha. Right? Yeah. Um, they have had chaos. What are the learnings? Um, I think in our industry, retaining the robust structure of an integrated, regulated uh, utility like we have in the Southeast, Alabama Power, Georgia Power, Mississippi Power, even with the gas company, is fundamental to our strength going forward. 
these so-called organized markets where some smart people go off in a room and try and create a formula-based market-based structure and disaggregate generation, transmission, distribution is a bad mistake. It's a science experiment that went bad. And they don't have the ability to plan for the long term. They don't have the ability to iterate solutions for best answers for customers around transmission and generation. And so your ability to plan in a very kind of methodical way over long periods of time disappears. And boy, Europe is the best example of that. The other one that's kind of fun to think about is what about big oil? I really am bullish on the belief that electrification will become more and more important to the world economy. And so I see a a future, especially when you consider electric transportation and the growth of the digital economy, the electricity really does continue to grow. But big oil is facing a day where it is almost inescapable that the ability to continue to grow the consumption of oil around the world will diminish. Now, I think they would all agree to that. And they will say it will diminish, but not disappear because there's so much of big oil that's uh, really tied up in the chemical production business. So that will always be there. But in terms of a transportation fuel, in terms of a heating fuel, in terms of electric generation, oil is going away. And so people like Shell and BP and Total are absolutely scrambling around. They are in chaos trying to figure out how do they react to this diminishment of the future of their product. Imagine if we felt that way. So it's, uh, it's fascinating. Shell, I think, has come out and said even that in five years, they want to be the biggest electric utility in the world. I kind of think that's um, rhetoric not real, but I would not be surprised to see them get way more engaged in our business in a variety of fronts, including Shell playing offense on electric transportation. Their view is if it's going to happen, I might as well lead it. Other people are trying to fight it. You know, we talk about the, the theory that change is inescapable and the waves will always hit the beach and chemicals in the sea will form and something will crawl up on that beach that we're going to have to deal with. Some companies still in big oil are going to just fight the waves hitting the beach and try and stop it. Other people are going to lean in and try and help invent their future. I think Shell's in that category. Others are not. You're listening to the SoPod Network. Coming up after these messages, Tom will answer questions submitted by employees through Tom.com. Stay tuned for more. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates between 5 and 20% of U.S. residents get the seasonal flu each year. To help prevent the spread of the flu, the company has partnered with Total Wellness to provide free on-site flu shots for all benefits eligible employees, retirees, and dependents over age 4 who are covered by the company's medical plan. Flu shot clinics are available at various company locations through November 7. Please visit MySource for additional information and As a reminder, report your annual wellness check-in by the end of the year to receive your 2019 premium incentive. At Southern Company, our comprehensive health and wellness program is designed to provide you and your family the resources you need to be well. 
I want to turn now to a couple of questions that came from uh, some employees. And I want to remind everybody listening, you can go to Tom.com and always submit a question. Tom reads and gets all of those and answers them himself and is always wants to hear from you. This first one comes from Jim Hamlin, who's a senior mechanical designer at SCS Operations in Birmingham. Jim asks, I've been hearing recent rumblings of nationalizing the power production industry among some of the candidates for president, uh, mostly on the Democratic side. How realistic do you see this as a possibility should any of those candidates be elected president? Yeah, that would be a really dumb idea. Look, uh, this country was founded on capitalism. The idea that you could take responsibility for your own personal outcome and, and the fact that uh, you have the personal energy and the personal wherewithal to make it happen. Uh, you know, we want to make sure that everybody has equal opportunity, but not equal success, right? Um, anybody trying to nationalize infrastructure like ours is a bad mistake. Don't do it. Uh, and I just, even if they win, you know, we always have to separate rhetoric from real solutions. I think a lot of this right now is rhetoric. Even if they win, I don't think anything like that would happen. It would just, it would just be too big a, a step. Thank you for your question, Jim. And the next question comes from Andrew McGeehan, who's a field specialist A for Atlanta Gaslight. He works out of the office in Marietta, Georgia. And this one I found interesting. You know, in our first episode, we talked a lot about leadership styles and lessons you can gain from leadership. Uh, Andrew asks, is there any guidance you could give me around becoming a leader in an organization such as Southern Company? What tools have helped you get the amount of success you've had in your career? Uh, he says, I'm not talking about becoming CEO of Southern Company, but you know, something like a regional director or vice president someday. Sure. Um, and this is maybe he's coming from someone who doesn't have, say, an advanced college degree or a lot of... Uh, yeah, look, I think degrees and all that stuff get you in the door and, you know, but really what matters once you get in the door is performance. And I always talk about three levels of kind of success. One would be personal responsibility. Look, it all happens to us. Me too. I, I, Scholar, I bet some days you get out of bed and you think about going to work and you go, those guys are a bunch of idiots. I mean, <laughs> the last thing I want to do is go to work today. I'd rather go play golf or something. But, you know, you just got to recognize in yourself that that's a valley and you recommit, and try and get the fire in your belly back to say today is going to be better than yesterday and tomorrow is going to be better than today. And so this commitment of individual responsibility and playing as well as you can. Here's something else I just, I, I always think about when I think about benchmarking, how do you really measure success, right? I don't want to compare myself against you. I want to compare myself against as good as I can be. How much better can I be? And the thing that always drives me in those kinds of personal evaluations is I recognize every day I can be better. No matter how good I am, you know what? I could have done that better. I could be this or I could do that. Personal responsibility and investing in the moment is arguably the most important thing you can do. Now, as you start driving up the management and leadership chain, the things that we look for are, do you make the team better? And so this is responsibility for your teammates. Your teammates may be your work group or it may be your department or it may be whatever. And sometimes those things are really hard to do, especially given, I think, broadly, the Southern culture. We tend to be very genteel and respective. And, you know, we have to sometimes call the hard questions 
on each other and get other people that have fallen out back in. Get everybody around you to invest to the best of their ability. If you can make somebody else better, boy, that looks good on your record. And sometimes calling out bad performance is some of the most effective things you can do. So that's responsibility for your team. Third is responsibility for the enterprise. Now, the enterprise can take lots of different meanings, but it's something bigger than yourself. It's bigger than your bottom line. It's not your family. It's your community or your church. It's it's not the company. It's not your department. It's the company. Or it's not the company. It's the industry. Or heck, it's the American economy or a, a, a global initiative, say, carbon reductions, things like that. When we think about your ability to influence positive outcomes for the earth, for mankind, those are the highest levels of leadership. And very often you will recognize, and I think most people really underestimate their ability and their personal power to influence others in a very positive way. When we talk about the what's in the house, sometimes your influence on others is a great marketing idea or a new scientific breakthrough or a more efficient way to deliver an electron. Those are the what's of our business, making, moving, and selling energy. But the how's of our business, your behaviors, the way you relate to other people or the community, the external publics, your customers, those things are arguably the most important things we can do. Because through your behaviors, you learn to multiply your own personal power. If you have good personal behaviors, we call those our values, then the good what's that you do are compounded in their positive effect. So to summarize, what's and how's matter. The how's may be as important and more powerful than your what's. And taking responsibility for yourself, responsibility for your teammates, and projecting that to the broadest enterprise possible is the way to really get ahead. Wonderful. We got a couple minutes here left before we uh, wrap this up. I'd be remiss. And again, I got a disclaimer here. There hasn't been one pitch thrown or anything like that, but the baseball playoffs are about to start. Any thoughts, predictions? So so I like the Nats over uh, the Brewers. They yeah. don't have Christian Yelich, I understand. That's correct. Broken kneecap. So uh, so I like the Nats, and they're going with Scherzer. And then uh, I like the Braves over the Cardinals, although I think it'll be a, it could be a seven-game series. We're pretty equal to them. Yeah, that one's five. But, yeah, that, that one could go the distance. Okay. Yep, yep. And then uh, uh, I certainly like the Dodgers all the way through. So I think the Braves against the Dodgers. But, gee whiz, their lineup is so strong. But you never can tell in baseball – you know, how do you get hot? You get a pitching staff hot. And you right. get somebody like Ronald Acuna or, or Freddie Freeman or somebody hot, and there you go. Uh, on the American side, I think it's going to come down to uh, Houston, Houston Yankees. and Yankees with the Yankees playing the Dodgers, and I hope they both lose. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a callback to the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, Yankees, well, you know, Dodgers. I have yeah. a little bit of my life up in New England, right? So I'm a Boston Red Sox guy. So yeah, gotcha. I'll never pull for the Yankees. Um, one last, uh, football-wise, oh, about gosh. a quarter way through the season in both college <laughs> and the NFL. Uh, I love my yellow jackets. I'm a diehard fan, but boy, it's a tough season. Uh, you know, we're just going to have to be patient. It's a transition from the option to this kind of conventional offense that they want to run. 
So we'll see and 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 give Jeff Collins time to recruit. So it might take three years. So we'll have to be patient. University of Georgia looks like champions. And boy, so does Alabama. And then you got Clemson sitting over there. You know, I don't see anything different among and between those three teams. They're going to be there. Who's the fourth? Looks like Ohio State, maybe. Maybe Oklahoma. Boy, they look good, though. And isn't it fun? Some of these... Uh, Quarterbacks that left Georgia, right? Oh, yeah. So the kid up in uh, Ohio State, the kid up in Washington, and then you got the incumbent there at yeah, Georgia. Yeah, Jake Fromm, yeah. yeah. They great. all look good. Yeah. So what a what an embarrassment of riches the University of Georgia's had on quarterbacks lately. Uh, if you're Dabo uh, at Clemson, they're coming off uh, really one, not playing well. Yeah. One point win, they escaped, they stopped the two point, you know, they deserve the win. What do you say to your team? What do you say to a team that, you f- get the sense maybe didn't play their best, didn't execute their best. What you kind know of- what, though? I think everybody gets tested. Companies get tested. People get tested. Teams get tested. This was their time to get tested, and they came through it okay. Now, you can argue, should North Carolina have gone for two? Should they have called the play? They called whatever. But Clemson came through and won. And at the end of the day, I always love that Bill Parcells comment. You are what your record says you are. Uh, and I know that's kind of a cold comment, but I think it's true. Clemson came through and won when they had to. They performed when they had to. Um, so maybe that's their test, and maybe they'll keep rolling for the rest of the season. It's going to be an exciting time. Always love it. Excellent. Tom, thank you so much for the time. We'll check in in a few more weeks and see what uh, has happened on, on and off the field at that time. You bet. See you, buddy. Take care. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tom Talks. Stay tuned for more podcasts from the SoPod Network.